0: Hello, this is John Holtzman, and welcome to the latest Patrick Henry Podcast, uh, where we look at the threats to liberty out in the world and how they can be counteracted positively. Today, I want to actually look at a very interesting article, and there's been a real desert of interesting thinking in my field for the last few years, but Hal Brands and Michael Beckley wrote a fascinating piece for foreign policy this week, where they refined the Thucydides' argument about China, we're looking at what China is going to do through the right lens, which is always history, always history. If you can understand the patterns of history, you understand the world. Or as Cicero put it another way, those who don't understand history are bound to remain children. So to avoid remaining children, let's look at what Thucydides said and then how Brands and Beckley have improved on it. And then tie this into some of the analysis I've already made about why the next few years are the key years fraught with peril in political risk terms for the U.S. dealing with China and the Sino-American Cold War in general. The Thucydides theory, which was made popular by Graham Allison, is a simple one. that Throughout history, wars tend to occur when when an established status quo power gets nervous over a rising revisionist power. And he looked at various examples throughout history, mentioning Thucydides, of course, the great chronicler of the Athenian-Spartan clashes, that this was the first example, that an established Sparta grew nervous of a rising maritime Athens, and the Peloponnesian War and the chaos and end of the Greek domination of the world was the result. That throughout history, more often than not, there are some exceptions, as when the UK gave way to the US in the 20th century, but in most cases rising powers bump head-on into established powers and that war about two-thirds of the time is the outcome and this gloomy analysis has kind of sat over a rising china what's seen as a rising china though again i've always been suspicious of this notion of china's rise um, and an established united states and this really sounded the intellectual call that led to the bipartisan political consensus in america between republicans and democrats who went from being doves Over China, as we've seen with the Barrington-Moore hypothesis, where China was going to become a stakeholder with the U.S. in running the world, to a world where we now all view in the United States China through a series of hawkish lenses. And this Thucydides argument of Allison was a key factor along the way. I, on my own, have said things in line with Branson Beckley, which is that I don't think China's a rising power. I think it's more like the Kaiser's Germany. It's a power that's been on the rise that feels that the time is now, that it's now or never to establish its dominance. And I've always tried to refine the Thucydides theory there. But Brands and Beckley took this a step further, amalgamating in not only my example of the Kaiser, but also Imperial Japan of the 1920s and 30s, uh, and then looking, as we both did, to Xi Jinping's China. And Branson Beckley came up with three basic points of commonality, that these powers that are not rising, as Thucydides said, but are peaking powers. And they said that the most dangerous global trajectory in world politics is the long ascent of a revisionist power in line with Thucydides, followed, however, by the prospect of that rising power's decline. That in the case of the Kaiser's Germany, Imperial Japan, and Xi Jinping's China, The key point isn't just that that power is rising, but that its rise is peaking, that the period of time it has to attain great power status is very limited, that it must strike now or never, and if it doesn't strike, that it's done for. And the three basic points that they lay out are you have economic stagnation after a long period of ascent. This would be the first point. Certainly this was true for Germany, which from its uh, time of unification in 1870-71 up until 1914 had been the big, biggest single um, success story economically in Europe. But suddenly czarist Russia at about the turn of the century began gaining on Germany from a low trajectory, admittedly, but quickly gaining market share given its vast resources, its introduction into the world capitalistic system, that Stolipin, the prime minister who unleashed reforms in Russia before being assassinated, um, that the Stolypin reforms had made Tsarist Russia a rising power to rival Germany, which itself was a rising power to rival the established fiscal hegemony of the UK. Germany's rise, although still impressive, was relatively coming to an end as Russia gained on it, and the UK remained, by a good ways, still the dominant economic power in the world. So economically, you see that the Kaiser was peaking. By brandishing his sword in the 20 years before World War I, he had startled the horses into creating um, an entente against him of Russia, France, and the UK, which on its own was a far stronger alliance than Germany tied merely to a weak and fading Austria-Hungary. so that Germany, by being threatening in the years before had created an alliance to stop it getting that last step. Again, geostrategically it was peaking as well. And so the fear for the Kaiser, who was told that by 20 by 1920 he could no longer dominate Europe was he either had to use his relative advantage as Russia had not yet caught up, or, and try to dominate Europe in some basic way, or he had to accept that it, Germany would be a peaking power, a great power within Euro, Europe, but not the power. And it was this milieu, this context, that led to Germany giving Austria-Hungary the blank check over Sarajevo that led to the start of World War I. In other words, this com- confirms to what I had said earlier, but also to Brands and Beckley's theory of a peaking power. Branson Beckley then add Imperial Japan and look at the same three points. Whereas Japan had grown in the years after the beginning of the 20th century and the aftermath of the Meiji Restoration by 6%, by the 1920s its annual growth rate was down to about 1.6%. So 6% to about 1.5% is a huge diminution in economic power. The, The Chinese, not just in relative terms, but but in, but the, sorry the japanese not just in relative terms but in absolute terms had already peaked this had already happened on its own in the 1920s at the time that the militarists began to dominate the the japanese parliamentary system at the same time when the japanese military decided to invade china In the 1930s, this alarmed the British and the Americans into setting up an alliance to try to balance against Japan, most notably by the United States declaring an oil embargo that would have totally shut Japan down. In in essence, Japan had to decide either a humiliating crawl down, leaving the war in China so that the Americans would open the oil spigots again, because Japan, resource-poor islands, were entirely dependent on oil exports, particularly from the United States, to keep going, And they either had to go all in with war in Asia or have a humiliating crawl down, which certainly would have led to the military no longer running. Japan. Well, from the militarist point of view in Japan, this is easy. They even said at the time uh, they had to jump up. uh, Tojo said, we have to jump off the cliff and hope for the best. This was a power economically peaking that saw the U.S. and the U.K. checking it geostrategically with the oil embargo, a dagger pointed at the heart of adventurism in China. The Japanese chose disastrously to strike Pearl Harbor, but another great example, not just of a rising Japan, but of a peaking Japan and this leading indeed to World War II and certainly war in the Pacific out there. And now we turn to Xi Jinping's China. And my analysis of what goes on. This fits perfectly, as Brands and Beckley agree and point out, uh, with the peaking power thesis of Germany in 1914 and Japan in the 1920s and certainly the 1930s. Um, China fits into this mold. First of all, demographically, China is going to get old before it gets rich. This is the single most obvious thing going on in China today. The ruinous one child policy. Again, only authoritarians think they can control matters of the heart and procreation. The ruinous one-child policy has left China, which started in the 1970s and ended just a couple years ago, has left China with a demographic wasteland where they will indeed get old as a society before they get rich and that this will retard greatly China's economic growth. the years of easy catch-up growth under Deng Xiaoping, uh, Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao are over... And instead, we have a China that's going to have to take care of a lot of old people without a safety net, not have enough workers in their system and be bypassed by more vibrant demographic countries in Asia, such as India, already set to become the the largest uh, population in the world and growing at six some percent before the pandemic, already rivaling China's growth rate in the old German scenario. China would be Germany, and India would be czarist Russia. It's got 20 years of great demography, easy catch-up growth ahead of it, where, China, where India from a lower base, as was true of Russia, will begin to catch up uh, to China very, very quickly as time goes on. And so they see they're going to get old before they get rich. At the same time, uh, Xi has really put the brakes on private enterprise within, in, within China, He's doing things with state-owned enterprises, coddling zombie corporations, and funneling money to the to the weakest members of, of society, the publicly funded state-owned enterprises of China, while cracking down on all the public entrepreneurs he sees as a threat to his reign. From Jack Ma and Alibaba to Tencent, all these other large groups are being sat on by the Chinese Communist authorities, and of course this is going to hurt innovation and growth over the long term. Um, Another factor involved economically is that Chinese total debt is now more than 300 percent both on and off the books with banking and that the shadow banking scenarios are going to lead to a series of failures or China having to prop up its economy. In other words, the days of happy, problem-free, double-digit growth are over and a very much tougher time is ahead as China puts the brakes on, and has much, much lower rates of growth. And these long-term trajectories limit China's economic rise. So again, it's peaking economically for all these reasons, mainly demographics, also the Chinese state coddling state owned enterprises, and the huge total debt burden, particularly in private banking. And then, of course, there's the fact that the Chinese have scared the horses geostrategically. We've been over this before, from cracking down on the Uyghurs and setting up what can only be called concentration camps in western Xinjiang province, to cracking down on the students in Hong Kong, to threatening the Australians for having the temerity to ask how the COVID virus started, to China's role in propagating the spread of the virus once they knew it was there, allowing foreign flights while cracking down on movement domestically being the example, to bullying the Indians over taking over huge swaths of territory in the high Himalaya, to threatening the Japanese in the East China Sea, to ignoring rulings limiting its control over the South China Sea, to bullying Taiwan and making it clear it demands that Taiwan rejoin China as a renegade province by peace or by force in the nearish future. For all these many reasons, the horses have been scared, and Xi Jinping is the huge, aggressive, nationalist break with Deng Xiaoping's far more effective foreign policy strategy of softly, softly. Hide your intentions and bide your time, Deng Xiaoping said, and that worked beautifully for a China that was growing at 10% a year. In essence, the Chinese said, we will revisit all these strategic issues in a generation. When we grow at 10%, Europe grows at one, the US grows at two, then we'll revisit these things in 20 or 30 years and see what happens. Instead, far too early, as was true for both Imperial Japan and the Kaiser, the Xi Jinping regime has brandished the sword, scared the various Indo Pacific countries into an alliance. This can be seen with the just attended meeting, first leadership attended meeting of the Quad in Washington where the four leaders, Prime Minister Suga of Japan, Prime Minister Modi of India, Prime Minister Morrison of Australia, and President Biden met face-to-face for the first time in the Quad. These are three great powers, India, Japan, and the United States, plus Anglosphere country uh, Australia, getting together to talk about political ties that are certainly centered around containing China. At the same time, a formal defense pact has appeared with AUKUS, Combining Anglosphere countries, the UK and Australia, with the US, ostensibly to build nuclear subs, but also talking about AI and cybersecurity as an old-fashioned defense pact. And these can these, these conjoining circles of containment are headed at China for the simple reason that Xi Jinping has made a stupid blunder. By brandishing the sword, he's combined his enemies. So you have exactly the same situation as occurred in 1914 worryingly and with Imperial Japan in the 1930s. You have a Xi Jinping's China economically beginning to run on fumes. At the same time, they've scared the horses into forming alliances against them by their overly bellicose and belligerent behavior. So as a peaking power, Xi is going to have a choice in, say, the next five or six years, uh, certainly by the end of the 2020s. And this is the period of fraught peril in political risk terms, for the Indo-Pacific. If the United States and its allies in the Indo-Pacific can get into the 2030s, all the trajectories I've talked about economically and geostrategically will be further advanced, and every year after, say, 2029, it gets harder and harder and harder for the Chinese to go ahead with a policy of adventurism. If you're Xi Jinping and you look at the world, there are only three ways to break out of the first island chain, that thwarts their efforts at great power status. If you look at any map and you start at Taiwan and head south through uh, Japan, the Philippines, and down to the Strait of Malacca, you see that that China is indeed hemmed in and can't escape into the broader Indian Ocean or Pacific Ocean with its its rising navy. And that without being able to escape the strictures of, of enemies in their view, who are tied to the United States in this first island chain, China is consigned to second-tier status. It will remain a great power, but will not be the greatest power in the Indo-Pacific unless it can break through. And if you're Xi Jinping looking at a map, there are only three ways to break through. And it's simple. Look at a map while you're listening to this. You can head north toward Taiwan, south to the Strait of Malacca, or overland. Well, let's quickly look at those three options. First to the south, the Strait of Malacca, doesn't work because there are too many enemies you run into it isn't just the united states controlling the strait of malacca to the south you would have to deal with the indian navy the indonesian navy the malaysian navy the japanese navy the filipino navy There are just too many countries in your way to blast your way through to the south so what about the overland marco polo route well that's what the belt and road initiative was designed to do to create an infrastructure dependent on china Linking the developing world with Europe, that if you dominated Eurasia, which is the key landmass in the world, anybody who's ever played Risk knows this, if you control Europe and Asia, you're going to win the game. And from the United States, the goal is simple. You stop a great power from dominating either Europe or Asia as you're an island in North America off this main landmass. This is the basic geostrategic rule of the game. The problem with the Belt and Road Initiative is the terms have been so onerous and there's been so much corruption that many countries are hesitating about continuing on. It isn't like the United States with the World Bank and the IMF. When loans go bad, the U.S. rolls its eyes and writes them off. When, China, when you deal with China and the loans go bad, you have a mafia-style partner to deal with, as the people of Sri Lanka found out when their main port, Hambantota, was handed over to the Chinese on a 99-year lease because they couldn't make their payments. Well, everybody knows this story in the Indo-Pacific and is loath to give the Chinese that kind of power over them. Malaysia, for instance, said, well, we want to reconsider and renegotiate our terms with the BRI because we don't want to end up an economic colony of the Chinese. So for all the talk and all the possibility of BRI, it's been really in practice quite limited by these mistakes. Corruption, slowness for these projects to go ahead, and China's onerous terms if you don't meet these terms. So if the Chinese can't go south, and if they can't go overland, what do they do? They head north. They head toward Taiwan, where basically you're dealing with the Japanese in a supporting role the Taiwanese military, which is weak, though getting better, and the United States. Far fewer allies to deal with, far less complications. You already think that Taiwan is a renegade province. And if you add this geostrategic logic, which if I can see, Xi must see and has talked about as a way to dominate the Indo-Pacific and ultimately dominate the world, that makes the control of Taiwan the new Berlin of this Cold War. Whoever controlled West Berlin was going to dominate, and Germany was going to dominate the Cold War, particularly in Europe. The same is true now for Taiwan. It's the new Berlin of the Sino-American Cold War. Xi knows he has to possess it to break out of the first island chain trap. He also feels himself, as Brands and Beckley have expertly made clear, I commend everyone to read the article in Foreign Policy, um, It in this period of feeling that you're a peaking power, there's a limited amount of time that G can advance before the Taiwanese, the Japanese, and the Americans continue to get their act together. So there isn't limitless time. And that makes, ironically, The period of maximum peril from about now, 2021, throughout the rest of the 2020s. By 2029, these problems in China economically, demographically, and geostrategically will make it harder and harder and harder for them to be a revisionist power, break out of the first island chain, try to dominate the Indo-Pacific, first East Asia, then the Indo-Pacific, then the world. As long as the United States and its allies retain the first island chain from the Strait of Malacca and Taiwan and continue to build up their alliance structure, they can let history take its course. Ironically, as Branson Beckley make clear, that means the next 10 years, or say the next five to six even, are the key political risk moment of the Sino-American Cold War and indeed of the future of our new era. The 2020s are the future. The future is now. And the ultimate danger is immediately now. Because China, not just a rising power, Has been corrected this thucydides notion well done by brands and beckley china's a peaking power with only one real way to go as the strait of malacca and bri options don't work very well meaning the peril is now the future is now and the time for the west to gather its alliance structure to try to deter and contain china is absolutely now well i hope you enjoyed this um i enjoyed this latest patrick henry podcast laying out Why China's peaking power ironically means the years ahead are fraught with political risk peril. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. I'm honored so many of you have. This boomlet is taking more and more of my time. I love Substack. I love the freedom it gives me to tell you the truth unvarnished and to give you real cutting edge yet fun analysis. And for those of you who have signed up again, please do contribute the $7 a month or $70 a year Uh, that we're asking. Because with Substack, for this very minimal amount, a Starbucks a month, we can continue to give you the Patrick Henry podcast, the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, our great serialization of the book that's been so popular, and continue to explain this fascinating place we live in. Because fasten your seatbelts, as Betty Davis would say, it's going to be a bumpy road ahead. Thank you very much.